you ever been to a wedding where everything just seems to go wrong? That would be one of the most cringeworthy experiences. Most women dream of their big day like a fairy tale, but you just imagine what it would be like if, if everything went bad during the wedding. Imagine probably start with people showing up late. The 200 guests supposed to be there at 5.30. Everyone starts showing up around 6, so it's already delayed. Meanwhile, while the bride is getting ready with her bridesmaids, her future mother-in-law accidentally spills a glass of red wine on her dress. She's already heartbroken, of course, but there's not a lot of options. They spent so much money on the wedding, it's not like they can cancel the big day. She's forced to swallow her pride and walk down the aisle with a stained dress. Already her day feels ruined. The ceremony starts off, and the officiant is pretty bad. He's lost his notes, so he's just kind of going off the cuff. At least he's fast. comes time for them to exchange rings, and of course, what do you know it? The groom's ring is missing. The best man opens a little ring holder, and it's, it's not there. And so in a panic, they do the only thing they can do. They, they steal a ring from one of the groomsmen to be a placeholder. It's already going pretty bad, but at least, finally, the ceremony is over, and they're married. Now the reception begins. That's when things get even worse. It's supposed to be an alcohol-free wedding, but instead, several of the guests and some of the bridesmaids have snuck alcohol in. They're starting to get drunk. Side note, that actually happened to our wedding. That's another story. (laughs) Also, the caterer, he's having a hard time keeping up. So the food is delayed. People are hungry. They're restless. To make matters worse, there's no music. The DJ they hired, he runs everything off his little laptop, but it decided to crash that day. So he left, he's frantic, trying to find a replacement, but who knows if he'll be back. To fill in the time, they jump to the speeches from the best man, the maid of honor, but they just tell these really embarrassing, awkward stories, just makes you squirm in your seat. It's it's not good. At least by now, the food has come out, and they've started to play some music on someone's phone. The bride with her wine-stained dress and the groom, they're doing their best to make the best out of the occasion. But now some of the guests are seriously drunk, they're causing a disturbance, A fight breaks out, the police are called, a few guests are arrested. That's actually happened at some some uh, weddings that Angel has done. But in all the confusion, it's also discovered that someone has stolen the wedding gifts, including all the cards with money in it. They'll never see those again. The evening ends with most people being upset and aggravated. There's no dancing. It never felt like much of a celebration. In all, it's like a Murphy's Law wedding. Everything that could go wrong pretty much did go wrong. And if that were if that were true, if all that really happened in a wedding, or if you were watching this in a movie, you'd, it'd be so awkward. You'd be squirming in your seat at every turn. It'd be so uncomfortable to watch. But wouldn't you know it, in the end, the bride and the groom left with a smile. Would that surprise you? They still had a happy ending. Well, how so? Because they knew that A marriage is not defined by a wedding celebration, but by the covenant that they just made between one another and God. And despite all the bad things that happened, they're finally married now, and to them, nothing else matters. No amount of unfortunate events can take that away from them. They are now one. They're together. And so they're still filled with love and joy and one another. And they head off to their honeymoon and live happily ever after. Wouldn't that be a a nice ending to... A terrible story. Literally, like, one bad thing happened after another. Everything went wrong. But in the end, things things turned out for the best. And in a way, you could liken that to the story of God and man in the Bible. Starts off pretty good. God, man, woman, in perfect fellowship in the gardens, paradise. But not long after that, 
the story turns south and it's paradise lost. Sin and rebellion enter the picture and that results in separation from God and judgment. And ever since the first pair for thousands of years, man's story has been defined by sin and suffering, loss, hurt, death. And these are the wages of man's sin. Over the centuries, everything that can go wrong pretty much has gone wrong. War, disease, famine. God's creation has fallen. It's broken. And it leads to just overall a sad, depressing story that constantly ends in death. And the story, it gets worse as time goes on. It gets really bad right before the end of the story. That's actually what we've been learning about here on Sunday mornings for several weeks now. We've listened to Jesus teach in the Olivet Discourse. He's telling us about things to come, things that will take place before the end. Only it's, it's so far, it's, it's a bad story. It's a sad, depressing story. In the future, in the time right before the end, man is hardened in his greatest rebellion before God. The whole world takes pleasure in wickedness, making them easy prey for one person known as the Antichrist who comes and he leads the whole world astray. Everyone worships him. And in light of man's culminating sin, God begins to pour out his wrath on the earth. And consequently, this seven-year period known as the tribulation is characterized by wars, famines, earthquakes, disease, persecution, martyrdom. It's just one bad thing after another. Billions perish. One-third of the earth at one point is completely destroyed. Yet man still does not repent. He's hardened in his sin. And this is what we've covered in the Olivet Discourse so far. Jesus is telling us about that future tribulation time in response to a question the disciples asked about the, the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. So he tells them, these are the things that must take place before the end. But so far, it's, it's, it's a bad story. Many will perish, many will be deceived, and many will be lost. It's all found in Mark 13, verses 5 through 23. And we've spent already the better part of five weeks covering these verses, finding out what Jesus says is to come before the end. And again, our focus so far has been almost entirely on the bad stuff. There is from Jesus a constant stream of bad news about that future time. It's deception, it's destruction, it's death, it's disaster. One bad thing after another. However, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. History is his story, God's story, and evil doesn't win in the end. God prevails, and Jesus next finally tells us some good news. He finally tells us about his return. And that's good news indeed. It's found in verses 24 through 27. That's the text we have for this morning in the Olivet Discourse. We find that, believe it or not, after all that bad stuff, there is actually a, a happy ending, at least for those who know Christ, because God and his righteousness prevails. Evil is judged. Jesus returns. And the kingdom finally comes. If you haven't already, open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 13. As I mentioned, we're still in the Olivet Discourse as we go through Mark. And so far, we've learned quite a bit about the future, about end times, specifically about that time right before Jesus comes back. It's known as the tribulation. 
It's a seven-year period where God starts to unleash his wrath on the earth. Finally, though, finally, we're getting to the good part. And that's where God reigns victoriously over sin and death through the return of Christ, his son. And our objective this morning is to read and behold and to study what Jesus finally tells us about the good part, about his return. Remember, again, that's what the disciples wanted to know originally when he would come in his fullness, when he would begin his messianic reign. They believed he was the Messiah. And they wanted to know, Jesus, when will your messianic reign begin? When are you going to bring the kingdom in its fullness? In their mind at the time, they had no concept of two comings of the Messiah. Instead, they thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. But after Jesus condemned the temple... They're starting to realize that maybe the kingdom isn't coming as soon as we thought or in the manner that we thought. And indeed, Jesus the Messiah came first to suffer and to die, to pay for the sins of the people, to set up a spiritual kingdom on earth. We are now living in that spiritual kingdom, the church. But he he tells them there will be a second coming. He will come again. And then he will bring with him the kingdom of God in its fullness. He will take back the earth, so to speak, judge all evil, and bring in everlasting righteousness. That was the hope, the anticipation of the disciples, what they were looking forward to when when God would just reign and would right all these wrongs. And that's our hope. That's our anticipation as well. And Jesus tells us about that now in Mark 13. We want to read about this and learn as much as we can about what Scripture calls the the blessed hope, excuse me, of the second coming. And we find what Jesus has to say about it now in Mark 13, verses 24 through 27. So let's read that now. After the culmination of all that bad news, we find, thankfully, this, Mark 13, 24 through 27. Jesus says, verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Although we're only dealing with four verses here, there's still plenty said about the second coming, and you add in a few other places from Scripture, and there's, a, there's actually a lot revealed about the second coming, and that's what we want to start into this morning. Find out what Jesus has to say about that time. And to help you out, let's start with this. Four observations about the second coming, so that you may cherish the blessed hope. That's what we'll tackle from this text this morning. Four observations about the second coming, that you may likewise cherish the blessed hope. And we'll begin with this, number one, the timing of the second coming. The timing of the second coming. And no, I don't mean to give here a prediction of the day or the hour that Jesus will return. He himself said, nobody knows the day, the day or the hour. And I don't want to join the list of the other fools who try and prove God wrong and make a prediction. So we make no prediction. But Jesus tells us relatively when he will return. In verse 24, he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. So when does Jesus come back? Simply put, at the culmination of the tribulation. He comes back at the very end of that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation. Now, if that's the case, if Jesus returns at the very end of the tribulation, it might be helpful to know what's going on at that time. Well, what's that time like? What takes place when Jesus returns? What's going on during that time? Now, for many weeks, we've been talking about this tribulation time, but this is actually a good opportunity for me to to bring together what we've studied and, and give you a nice overview of what takes place during that time, which culminates in Christ's return. So let's do that now briefly. I want to give you a recap of all the main events of the tribulation, which leads up to Christ coming back. It starts off with the rapture. The next event in God's prophetic timetable is the rapture. That's where all true believers are caught up from the earth to be with the Lord forever. And some believe this event will take place at the end of the tribulation. Scripture actually doesn't reveal a ton about the rapture. It's mystery, but nonetheless, from Scripture, we believe it takes place at the beginning of the tribulation. That's an entirely different sermon for another time. But not long after that, the tribulation officially begins when this figure we know as the Antichrist signs a treaty with the nation of Israel. As a side note, I'll just say it's rather interesting, don't you think, that after 2,000 years, Israel has been reformed as a nation in their land. Rather interesting. Anyway, the tribulation initially begins with a time of peace as the Antichrist guarantees the security of Israel. But his peace is a false peace and quickly thereafter comes war. Not against Israel, but against the other nations. We learn from Daniel 7 that the Antichrist is the leader of some Western nation, and he thereafter subdues or conquers ten other nations, and he rules in what has come to be a revived or a renewed Roman Empire. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the temple has been rebuilt, and Israel has resumed their sacrificial worship system. Israel lives in relative peace during the first half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But the same cannot be said for the rest of the world. As we studied, this is when God begins to pour out his wrath upon the earth. And it starts off with these different judgments. The first is the seven seal judgments from Revelation chapter 6. We've studied these. War, famine, disease, or earthquakes wreak havoc on the earth. They kill one-fourth of the population. There's also mass martyrdom. I really wouldn't be surprised that If at the beginning of the tribulation, many people come to salvation in response to the rapture event. But either way, many new believers are killed for their newfound faith in Jesus. Understand, during this time, the Holy Spirit is still at work renewing and regenerating the hearts of people, but the Holy Spirit's ministry of restraining, withholding sin has been taken away. And that's why during these seven years, man's depravity reaches a fever pitch. Well, at the same time, during this period, the apostate church grows. The majority of so-called Christians who are left behind during this time 
They have forsaken the truth to save their skin, but they still claim some allegiance to Jesus. They are they're a false church. They're an apostate church. They claim loyalty to Jesus, but they are unfaithful to him. This church, though, is said to be a strong, wealthy, powerful, political and religious system. It's centered in Rome. And that's why many of the reformers believed this was talking about the Catholic Church, which certainly is possible. And the Antichrist figure is said to have a close connection to the apostate church, which is why many have also speculated that the Antichrist will be a pope, which is also quite possible. Anyway, that's the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It's a bad time on the earth. But a change takes place at the halfway point, the three and a half year mark, centers on the figure we call the Antichrist. Revelation 13 tells us that at the halfway point, he's assassinated. He dies violently with a fatal wound to the head. He's killed. But then he comes back to life. He resurrects. The whole world sees it. And that's one of the tipping points that leads the world into worshiping him. It's fitting for an antichrist. The word anti really means in place of. He sets himself up in place of the Christ. He is the God, the Savior of the world. And the world is deceived into worshiping him. But he's no savior of Israel. In fact, this is when he turns on Israel. He breaks his treaty with the nation of Israel at the halfway mark. Armies surround and invade Jerusalem. There's a great slaughter. This is when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. Remember that? I spent a whole sermon on that one. He goes in the temple and erects an image of himself to be worshipped as God by the nations. And through satanic deception, essentially, the whole world follows him. He becomes like a world dictator. During the invasion, many Jews are killed. Some have fled into the wilderness. and There, they will be supernaturally protected by God. Israel, once again, enters the wilderness, and God will protect them for the last three and a half years. Now, at this point, we enter the second half of the tribulation. And that's when things go from bad to worse. Things get really bad on the earth. The Antichrist begins his reign of terror. He turns on the apostate church and he destroys it. It appears that all other world religions have been banished during this time because the whole world is basically seen to worship him. Amazingly, though, throughout this time, as a side note, many people still come to salvation. God always leaves behind a witness, and that is still true during the tribulation. But the rest of the world pretty much falls apart during this time. The remaining judgments of God fall. Next come these seven trumpet judgments, which we also have already studied. In all, one-third of the sea and the land is just burned up, destroyed. Warfare continues during this time. The Antichrist is in power, but it seems that distant parts of the world are not so happy about that. And the nations, some nations start to assemble against him and a 200 million man army comes from the east. It's kind of amazing to me that when the Bible was written, they could not conceive of a 200 million man army. But today, actually, we, we can. We can. As these second three and a half years near their end, 
more of God's judgments come. The final seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. The last judgments takes place right near the very end. This is when things get so bad that if Jesus didn't come back right then, nobody would live. After this, a little while longer, everyone would die. Because all fresh water is gone. Not a third, all of it. The seas, they're gone. The sun burns people intensely. 100-pound hailstones fall, obviously crushing people. The Earth's, Earth's crust is torn apart. Just imagine every island and mountain being rearranged on the planet. During this time, people will know that the end is near, but still, demonically inspired men will gather and head for their own destruction at a place called Armageddon. Refers to a battle, really a place, the plains of Megiddo in Israel, where this final battle takes place. It's actually not a single battle, but a series of battles. It's also not a single place. Revelation 14 tells us it stretches 180 miles. That's the length of Israel. And other locations mentioned are Jerusalem, Edom, and the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Makes sense to us, hundreds of millions of people will be fighting here. And John calls this place the winepress of God's wrath. And what do you do to a wine press with grapes in it? You stomp on them. And pretty soon after this, that's what Jesus comes and does. But before that, you know, at this point, details can be a little hard to put together because the Bible only tells us so much. But it appears that Antichrist has made Jerusalem his capital city. And at the very end, he's making a final push to eradicate Israel, who's been protected in the wilderness. Meanwhile, this 200 million man army comes from the east and a large battle ensues in the Holy Land. Speaking of Israel, though, they have been protected throughout the last three and a half years, but they've also been heavily persecuted throughout the last three and a half years. And all of their suffering has had its desired effect. Throughout this time, they've finally been broken and humbled by God. And at the end, they turn back finally to God. They cry out to God and most importantly, they finally cry out to Jesus as their Messiah. They accept Jesus as the Christ. Like Zechariah 12.10 says, they will finally look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as an only son. But shortly thereafter, their mourning will turn to cries for deliverance Israel is about to be destroyed, but they call out to Jesus and their cries are heard. Jesus returns. This leads to number two, the sign of the second coming. So there you have it. There's a a summary of the tribulation, the events, everything we've said you kind of put together now. You want the timing? Well, Jesus comes back after all that. After that takes place, The nations are gathered in the Holy Land. A battle ensues. Israel cries out. And at that time, this happens. Look again, verse 24, Mark 13. He says, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Stop there for a minute. Remember, according to Matthew 24, 3, the disciples, they asked Jesus for a sign of his coming and of the end of the age. 
And the coming of Jesus himself is a sign, but here we learn that immediately before Jesus comes, God gives some special signs in the heavens that everyone sees. The sun, the moon, the stars, they're all darkened, and the powers that are in the heavens are shaken. And first we need to ask, what's this mean? What's he describing here? What, what is this actually talking about? Well, I think it's safe to say that he's not actually suggesting that the sun is extinguished or stars literally fall to the planet. And we approach the Bible literally, but not with a wooden literalism. If, if there's reason in the context to see figurative language, then that's fine. And here there's reason. That said, that doesn't mean we spiritualize everything Jesus says. Some people do and says, just just poetically describes God coming in wrath in AD 70. No. Instead, I think the best solution is to take what Jesus says here at face value and what John sees in Revelation 13 and, and throughout the book as phenomenological language. That's right, phenomenological language. And it's a seven-syllable word. Don't worry, it's not on the test. It basically just means you describe things as you see them. You're describing it as you see it. And isn't that what John does in the book of Revelation? And as an example, you might ask someone, hey, what time is sunset? But you know, there's, there's no such thing as a sunset. The sun never sets. The sun doesn't move. Instead, the earth rotates until the sun goes past the horizon. But there's, there's no such thing as a sunset. But that's what we call it because to us, that's what it looks like. It looks like the sun is moving across the sky and that it sets over the horizon. Even though that's not true, we call it that way because that's what it looks like to us. And that's what John does in Revelation. You know, what Jesus says here about the sun, moon, stars, John describes something very similar to that in Revelation 6, only it takes place earlier in the tribulation, the first half. It's in connection with the sixth seal judgment. And what is the sixth seal? It's a great earthquake. This huge earthquake, and John says, as a result of that earthquake, the sun becomes black, the, the moon looks like it's red, and you see stars falling from the heavens. No, stars didn't literally touch down on the planet. That's obviously not possible, but that's what it looked like to him. He's describing what he's seeing in this vision, so with that understanding, we can piece together an explanation. This was a supreme earthquake. The whole earth shook. And as we know, the fault lines are connected to volcanoes. And I think most likely this will be a time when the earth's crust is in upheaval. And through a series of eruptions, so much ash is spewed into the atmosphere that the sun looks like it's black and the moon looks like it's red. That's what happens even today with limited volcanic eruptions. And we don't know this for certain, trying to give an explanation. It could just be purely supernatural. Sure thing. It also, though, could be paired with a meteor shower, which today we call shooting stars, even though they're not at all stars. But that's what it looks like. And when John sees this vision, it looks like stars falling to the earth. Well, that's what John says back in Revelation 6. And something very similar happens when what Jesus says here right before he turns. It happens a second time. This also is paralleled in the book of Revelation. Remember, I just told you about the final judgments that come upon the earth right before Jesus returns. These, these bowls of wrath, these seven bowls of wrath. The last ones. What's the, what's the seventh bowl? The le- very last thing, the last judgment that God sends on the earth before Jesus comes. What is it? 
It's another earthquake. But this time we're talking about the biggest earthquake ever. I mean, ever. Revelation 16, 18 says. We're talking about every island disappearing, every mountain being moved. Think about every fault line exploding, every volcano erupting. So much ash is spewed that the the whole sky goes dark. And in addition, Revelation 16 says, accompanying the seventh bowl of wrath are these hailstones, 100-pound stones that fall from the heaven. Earlier, John saw a vision of hail mixed with fire. And the way he describes it, we don't know, but he could be describing a meteor shower, like deadly shooting stars. They fall and they crush people, he says, and they create a great terror. All in all, it fits what Jesus says takes place right before he returns. The sun, moon, stars are darkened. And basically, the last sign that takes place before Jesus returns is this. It's planetary devastation followed by darkness. As a result of God's final bowl of wrath, the earth erupts and the sky goes dark. And theologically, as a side note, darkness often accompanies the judgment of God like it did on the cross. The second half of the cross, the sky grew dark. God was there in judgment. Anyway, Jesus tells us in in Luke that in response to this, in response to the darkness and the terror of the last bowl of wrath, men just start fainting from fear. The whole world, they're, they're afraid. They're cowering in fear because they know what this means and what this signifies. And that's our next question. Okay, what does this signify? Right before Jesus comes, he says, the heavens are shaken. The sun, moon, stars, they go dark. What does it signify? It signifies that finally the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has come. If you read the Old Testament, you know your Old Testament, you know that's a specific phrase, the day of the Lord. It can refer to any time of God's wrath. Sometimes it's used to refer to the whole seven-year tribulation period, but most specifically it refers to the one day, the final day, when God himself shows up and he judges all evil and rescues the righteous. It's the day of retribution. And guess what? Not surprisingly, the day of the Lord is often connected in the Old Testament to the sun, moon, and stars going dark and God himself showing up to judge and to deliver. Just listen to Isaiah 13, 6 through 11. Just follow along, Isaiah 13, 6 through 11. He says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. We don't have time. You can write down Joel 2, 30-32. Same thing. All over the place in the Old Testament, this depiction of the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. Who can endure, Joel says. 
And that's a consistent biblical picture. At the end of the tribulation, the nations are raging. They've come together in Israel. It's World War III or four or five, whatever it is. The slaughter is great. The earth itself is erupting. Everyone feels it. Entire cities collapse. The topography of the, of the planet changes. Volcanoes erupt. Hail, perhaps meteors fall, crush people. There's immense terror. And soon the sky grows dark and everyone's just afraid. They're scared and they know what's coming. And amidst the darkness, every eye sees a great light. This is number three, the display of the second coming. Thirdly here, the display of the second coming. Jesus says in verse 26, after all that, then, then, They will see the Son of Man coming, clouds with great power and glory. In our study of the Ascension, we learn Jesus, he left the earth from the Mount of Olives. He ascended into heaven by a cloud. The angel showed up and said, why are you looking around? Jesus, he'll come back in the same manner as he departed. And this is it. He comes back in the cloud. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Of course, it's not talking about a white, puffy, cumulus cloud. It's talking about the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory. Jesus comes back as God with power and glory. Everyone will see him. He will light up the dark sky like like a match in a cave. Everyone will know who he is and they will know what his appearance means. For the wicked... His coming means certain doom. Before the faithful, His coming means certain rescue. Now there's two passages I just have to show you in connection with the second coming. One is the Old Testament version. You want the Old Testament version of this event? It's found in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 2 through 9. I'll read it for you. Zechariah 14, verse 2. God says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, Verse 5, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. The second coming seemed from the Old Testament vantage point. A lot can be said here, but I find the most amazing thing is that this passage describes Yahweh himself coming and standing on the Mount of Olives. It's actually talking about God himself. He says, I will come and I will stand on the Mount of Olives and fight and deliver you. Of course, to us, it's just another affirmation that Jesus is God and he comes as God with power and glory. It's also remarkable that when the nations see 
Jesus coming with his army of saints and angels, the holy ones with him, they actually gather together to fight against him. Everyone in this battle of Armageddon will rally together to fight against Jesus when they see him. But they will instantly be slaughtered. There's not even a battle. Jesus will fight against them. He will prevail. Those who call on him will be saved. The rest will be killed. There's one more passage we have to see. The New Testament version, apart from what Jesus says here, the longest, the most detailed explanation of the second coming found in none other than Revelation 19. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there. It's such a lengthy and and important passage. I want to show you now the New Testament version of these events, which gives us more information. Revelation 19. Let's just read this, and you can behold John's vision of Christ coming back. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, But the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's it. That's the second coming. Jesus comes and he judges. So much can be said here, but I'll just point out Notice when Jesus comes, he's no baby in a manger. He's not a meek and a mild teacher. He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords for two simple purposes. To judge every single evildoer on the planet instantly and to rescue those who call on his name. Jesus judges. He comes in pure power and glory. He doesn't even need his army. He speaks and everyone dies. The world enters into judgment. Let's lead to lastly, last observation we can make back from Mark 13, number four, the judgment of the second coming. Four observations here, at least for this morning. Lastly, the judgment of the second coming. 
Mark 13, Jesus concluded in verse 27, he said this after he returns, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Although some would beg to differ, this does not actually refer to the rapture. Rather, when Jesus returns, everyone who's involved in that final battle of Armageddon, they're immediately slaughtered. They're all killed and judged, including the Antichrist and even Satan himself. Meanwhile, Israel is rescued as they call on Jesus. Remember, Jesus described the tribulation like a woman in labor. Well, labor is over. The pain is over. The baby has come. The son is here. And with him comes deliverance. And at this point, Jesus, the king, he sets in motion his plan to reclaim the earth and to begin his rule. And that starts with a separation and a judgment. A separation and a judgment. There are other people left alive, not counting the Battle of Armageddon, but throughout the rest of the world, there's still some people alive on the planet, and they're all gathered and separated and judged. And he starts with the elect. All those believers around the world who have survived the tribulation are gathered together to him. And that's what verse 27 is describing. Jesus sends out his angels, and they gather the elect to him to be with him, and they will inherit the millennial kingdom. Not long after that, even contemporaneous, the lost, they too are gathered around the world. Every unbeliever is gathered and brought, and everyone is made to stand before Jesus. And he will separate them, and he will judge them. Jesus himself tells us about all this in the Olivet Discourse, found in Matthew 25. It's known as the sheep and the goats judgment. This is when it takes place. Matthew 25, verse 32, he says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And all those who follow him as sheep, he has come to save them, and they will enter in the joy of their master. They will inherit the kingdom which he brings. But all the goats, the wicked, the lost, they will be executed and sent to their judgment. Matthew 25, 46, he says, These, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. This is the judgment of the second coming between the true and the false. It's one of the main reasons Jesus comes. It's the day of the Lord. God's patience with the world of sin and rebellion, it's, it's finally over. It's time for justice. And when Jesus comes, that's what everyone gets, justice. And thereafter, his peace, his righteousness begins, and he begins to reign. Well, believe it or not, we've only just scratched the surface of what the Bible says about the second coming. There's a lot more to see. So actually one of the core truths of Christianity, it's called the blessed hope. It's actually meant to be life-changing. There, there is to all this that we stated a huge practical lesson to be learned, a huge implication for your daily Christian life, which, unfortunately, we don't have time for this morning. But since this is so significant, we'll be coming back next week for a full-length bonus sermon on the practical impact of the second coming. It's, it cannot be missed. We will build on what we learned today and we'll see how 
actually life-changing. These truths should be right now. That's next week. For now, though, just in brief reflection on Christ's return, I should say this. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you've not repented of your sins, you've not denied self, you've not followed Him as Lord and Savior, hear this and be warned. This is the end of every man apart from Him. And even if you don't live to see these days, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. The same wrath will come one way or another. God is just. You have sinned. So what are you going to do? That there's nothing you can do except cling to the gospel, the good news. That this same Jesus came first to suffer and die for your sins and to pay the penalty of your sins for you that you might be forgiven and reconciled and redeemed and brought back to your God. Jesus will return. He will judge. But he first offers you salvation from his own wrath if you would just call out to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's true now and then, but call out to him now before your days are up. And for the rest of you here who have already done this, even though the events of the tribulation can be terrifying to hear about, still you have reason to leave and be encouraged. The end of the story. It's kind of like the wedding we talked about where everything goes bad. Everything goes bad in the tribulation. It's one bad thing after another. God's creation has gone awry. Mankind is in total rebellion. The earth is being destroyed. Just, it's just a bad story. But in the end, all that matters is that the bride and the groom are united. And that's what happens. That's, that's the end of the story. Despite all that judgment, Jesus, the groom, he comes And he is forever united with God's people, the bride. And for those who know him, there is actually a happy ending. Where in the end, all things are made right. Every wrong is made right. And peace and righteousness reigns. So for us, we can be encouraged. And even now, despite the trials and tribulations of this life, press on, endure, finish your race. This is what we have to look forward to, to being with him. We will be with Him when He comes. And we can live life even now with the blessed assurance, knowing that we've already conquered in Him. Sin, death, Satan, the world, our enemies. We've overwhelmingly conquered through the blood of the Lamb. So be encouraged. Press on. And our prayer, whenever we hear this, should be the same. Simply, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. Let's pray. Our precious Redeemer, our our Savior, our Lord, our, our God, we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and that you would come quickly. And it's true. Several different people believe different things about the end, about what you've revealed. It is largely mystery, and we want to do our best. We want to get it right. We want to know things to come. You reveal this to your disciples that they would know and be challenged by the truth of your coming. But this we know for certain. You will come. You will judge. You will rescue. 
And we want to be among those rescued. We cry out to your name now, affirming you as, as the Lord, the Savior, the, the God, and the King of that coming kingdom. And for those reasons, we can't wait for your return. This world is wicked and getting worse. Evil reigns, and we can see, we can see how bad it's going to get. And we won't be surprised. But we cry out, like the martyrs under the altar, we cry out, Lord, how long until you just come back and finish and judge and bring in everlasting righteousness? We know, though, the timing is in your hands, so we will wait patiently. And in the meantime, give us the grace and the strength through Christ to endure. We have a race to run. We have work to do. You have given to us. May we busy ourselves with this, living in anticipation of the joy of the kingdom. But for now, we, we just hope in you, and we close and we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly, we pray. Amen.